Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag. And is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Our Father, we thank you this morning for so many reminders through Scripture, through singing, through praying of your great love for us. We thank you, our Father, not only for reminders of what love is, but we thank you for reminders of the truth that when we did not know how to love, when we only knew how to hate, when we hated you, you loved us. And you sent your Son to be the propitiation for us, the ones who hated you. And Father, may this work its transforming work in our lives. Might we be changed, even this morning, into those who are compelled by your love, drawn by your love, transformed by your love, into those who demonstrate the love of Christ for the glory of God. Would you do that even as we unfold this passage before us? Would you give me wisdom in explaining? Would you give me clarity of mind and word? And would you give me accuracy as I speak? And would you, would you take this word, this inerrant, faithful word of this text and burn it into our hearts and change us by it. For we all need this transformation. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. What is love? One cartoon explained it this way. Love is what one feels when one meets a person who has a very profound impact upon one and meets all of one's psychological, emotional, and spiritual needs. It's either that or when one's heart goes pitter-patter. My my favorite contrast between infatuation and love explains it this way. Infatuation is when you think that he's as sexy as Robert Redford, as smart as Stephen Hawking, as noble as Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, as funny as Robin Williams, and as athletic as Arnold Schwarzenegger. Love is when you realize he's as sexy as Stephen Hawking, as smart as Arnold Schwarzenegger, as funny as Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, as athletic as Robin Williams, and nothing at all like Robert Redford. But you love him anyway. In the movie Love Story, the character played by Ally McGraw tells the character played by Ryan O'Neill, love means never having to say you're sorry. Two years later, Ryan O'Neill is playing in another movie called What's Up, Doc, opposite a character portrayed by Barbara Streisand. Barbara recites the same line to Ryan O'Neill. Love means never having to say you're sorry, to which he responds, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. A little bit more seriously, Stendhal, in his 1822 treatise on love, wrote this. Love is like a fever which comes and goes quite independently of the will. In other words, love is something that is emotional and we can't make a decision about it. Um, I'm not saying I affirm what he's saying. A few years ago, researchers at the University of Colorado were doing some analysis of music lyrics and they discovered that the word love is largely absent and in significant decline from top 40 songs that were being published. One music publisher explains the change in this way, the loss of the word love. Quote, The use of the word sex or sexy is just a replacement for love. Kids think it means the same thing. End quote. 
Whatever, whatever else we say about love, most people believe that love is natural for us. We, we fall into love and, and we just kind of naturally know what to do. Uh, a couple gets married and the husband knows how to love and to love well almost immediately and naturally. The, the wife similarly knows how she should love. And search, certainly the most natural thing in the world is for a mother to love her children. There, there is no love, most people would say, that is as sweet and pure and natural as a mother's love for her children. But these explanations of love that I have just given us demonstrate that love is neither natural nor rightly understood. Scripture also tells us that both husbands and wives must be told repeatedly to love one another and and how to love one another because they don't know that they should love and being commanded to love, they don't know how to love. That's why Scripture says, Husbands, love your wives. Paul was using short, simple words to make sure that simple-minded men would understand the gravity of their calling. You've got to love your wife. And then, Three verses later, he says, So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. You ought to love her the way you naturally love yourself. In other words, it is natural to love yourself. He's not commending that. And you ought to love your wife in that same way. Now, wives aren't exempt from this admonition. So Paul writes to Titus that as Titus is fixing the churches in Crete, He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. It's not natural, normal, easy for a wife to love her husband. The scripture also tells us that it's not natural for a mother to love her children. It is a learned responsibility. And it is something that is best done within the context of the church body, which is why Scripture says this, again, from Titus, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. I remember the first time I I read that where the weight of it hit me. She, he is saying that because she, the, the mother, doesn't naturally love her children. She, she has to be told to love her children and she has to be instructed as to how to love her children in a way that honors the Lord. And so it is fitting on this Mother's Day to be reminded about what love is and what love does. And to do that, I, I want to turn back to the passage we just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and remind us about, about the nature of love, what it is, and then what love does. And it's fitting as we turn to this section to be reminded that this is not a marriage passage. Now, I know that this passage is read at virtually every wedding, but this isn't a marriage passage, and it is not a wedding passage. It is not a family passage. Well, that's not exactly true. It is a family passage, but it's not a husband and wife family passage. It is a church family passage. So in chapter 12, the apostle is talking about spiritual gifts and how those gifts are being used in the church body. Chapter 14, he will again talk about those gifts and about some of the abuses of those gifts and how we're to to serve in the church body. And in between these two church passages, he sticks chapter 13 and the call to love. In other words, the way we serve in the body and the way we use our gifts in the body is manifested through this attitude and character and action of love. So, so this is a church body passage, which means that as we unfold this, does this apply to, to wives? Certainly. But friends, this is not a, if you're a husband or a dad or a male, a, a, a get out of jail free card, I can, I can disengage my mind, I can unplug my ears, if you will, and not pay attention to this. No, this is a church body passage. That means this is for all of us. On Mother's Day. This is, this is a passage that teaches all of us how we are to love. And specifically, what does this passage teach us? 
and teaches us what love is. And to love is to think and act to the benefit of another because we have been loved by God. This passage teaches us what love is. And love is to think and to act to the benefit of another because God has first loved us. In this passage, Paul uses 15 descriptive words to explain what love is. And and I've divided those up into four overarching traits or characteristics of love. The first is given to us in verse 4. And that is the nature of love. The nature of love. It is, it is, if you will, an overview of love. And, and as we come to this, we do well to be reminded it's not easy to love. Sometimes love is hard. Even, even when we've made commitments to one another through the covenants of marriage or through the covenant of a church membership, love is sometimes hard, isn't it? Now maybe you don't want to say amen, but I'll just, I'll just imagine that all of you said amen. It's sometimes hard. We, we sin against each other and we see each other's blemishes and we see each other's failures and, and those impact us. And, and to love someone else in the context of when they've sinned against us, it becomes costly. For instance, one skeptic has said, in every marriage more than a week old, there are grounds for divorce. The key, he goes on, is to find and keep finding reasons for marriage. What, what does love look like in the context of relationships that are broken? What does love look like in the context of relationships that are difficult? And in verse 4, Paul begins by giving us two overarching summary descriptions of love. They, they point to both the inward and the outward part of our lives. So the inward part, how, how should we be thinking? as we are loving others? And then, and then in the second part, what should we be doing as we love others? And the first characteristic that he draws our attention to in verse 4 is that love is patient. Love is patient. To be patient means to suffer long. Now, the patient person is controlling his mind and, and withholds taking action. He's not rash. He's not sudden. He's not passionate in his actions. He is methodical. He is deliberate. He is slow to act. Now, now some of you guys are slow to act in circumstances and, 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 and we would call that procrastination in doing things. So your wife has, has said, um, you know, would you please take care of this? And in fact, I'm thinking as I say that about a particular project that my wife has drawn my attention to a couple of times that needs fixing, like one of our gutters that's kind of flooding a, a flower bed in front of our house. And if some of us would respond, look, you don't have to keep reminding me every six months, I'll take care of it. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about deliberation in relationships so that we are slow to become angry. We are slow to retaliate. We can endure delays and disappointments without expressing disgust or anger. This person is inwardly controlled when he is wronged. A patient person is a non-retaliatory person. And, and notice that because it's love that he's talking about, he's not talking about patience in relationship to circumstances. He's talking about patience in relationship to people. That, that you're patient with people and enduring with people, especially when the disappointments and sins that happen in relationships impact your life. In that circumstance, he says, this person will be slow to be angry. He's willing to be wronged and willing to deliberately pursue reconciliation and restoration. And friends, this was not the reputation of the Corinthian church. I mean, just go back to chapter 6 and think about Paul's admonition that they are not, not go to court against each other because some of them were so impatient. I've been wronged, I've been wronged, and I, I have a right to get back what I've been wronged by. And so nothing is happening in the church and nobody's going to fix it in the church, so I'm taking them to court. It's impatience that's driving that. And this was not the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was not patient. And there's a second characteristic. Paul is exhorting them to think patiently, inwardly. They have the characteristic of patience. 
The second overarching characteristic he draws attention to is that they are kind. And there, with kindness, he's not talking about a mindset, but he's talking about what they are doing, their, their actions. And kindness is a word that refers to generosity and graciousness and a benevolent disposition to others. It's graciously doing what is right when a person has been wronged. It is, it is goodness in action. Others have been hostile to this person, but this person responds with friendliness and graciousness and gentleness in every interaction with that other person. Kindness stresses that he is not only inwardly controlled when he is wronged, that's patience, but that he is also outwardly controlled by grace when he is wronged. People sin against him, and he does not retaliate in bitterness, but instead he speaks with and acts with kindness and graciousness. You know, you know that old secular song, You Always Hurt the One You Love? Biblical kindness and biblical love says, You always love the one who hurts you. Now, that doesn't sound quite the same, and it doesn't sing quite the same, but the theology is a whole lot better than you always hurt the one you love. Again, the Corinthians were, were not disposed towards kindness. But because God is kind to us, the believer can be kind to others. So, overarching principles. Love is patient. Love is kind. Inwardly, we are willing to endure wrongs that are committed against us with grace and without anger. And outwardly, we pour out kind and gracious words and actions to others, including those who sin against us. Surrounded by, by weak and imperfect and sinful people, we think and act in ways that demonstrate we are being controlled by God's grace. I am not controlled by my fleshly desires, but I am controlled by God's grace, and that is manifested through my patience and through my kindness. And friends, this is exactly what women are called to do when they are in difficult relationships, even relationships with unbelieving husbands. So Peter will say in his first letter, chapter 3, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. How can a woman, when she is being maligned, criticized, put down when she is not cared for, when she is not loved by her husband, how can she respond with a chaste and respectful behavior? That's the kindness we've just talked about. How can she do that? It's when she has ordered her mind around patience. This is, this is what a woman does when she's in a, an ungodly relationship or married to an ungodly man. But this is not just the responsibility of the woman in a marriage, this is the responsibility of all people. So Jesus says in John chapter 13, right before He goes to the cross, He reminds the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, so that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. How will people know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ except by when you love others in the body of Christ in a way that is patient and kind. I think I, I fear sometimes, friends, that, that our gospel conversations are impacted because we have not loved well. And others see that. And they're not drawn into the body of Christ because they're not seeing anything different. Oh, friends, when we love well, they will look at us and say, how is it that you all get along so well? Uh, let me tell you about the love of Christ. And we have a gospel platform to tell them about Jesus Christ. There is another characteristic of love that is given to us middle of verse 4 through verse 6. And that is the limitations of love. The limitations of love. This is what love will not do and this is what love cannot do. Following the, the, the two broad descriptions about love that Paul gives us, love's patient, love is kind, he gives us eight negatives, eight things that, that, that love doesn't do. This is not characteristic of love. There are simply some things that love will not do. And, and friend, listen carefully. If someone does these things, it doesn't matter what they say. 
It doesn't matter how many times they say, I love you. If these things are characteristic of their lives, then they do not love. Because love doesn't act in this way. First of all, he notes, middle of verse 4, love is not jealous. To be jealous is, is to boil with envy. It's to see the success of someone else and be displeased with their success and to desire it for themselves. Now, now there is a kind of jealousy that's good. So God is spoken of as a, as a jealous God. He, Ezekiel 39 is jealous for his own name. Joel chapter 2, he is jealous for his land, the land that he has given to his chosen people Israel. Uh, Zechariah chapter 1, he is jealous for his inheritance. There's, there's also a jealousy that's not only characteristic of God, but a jealousy that's appropriate also for believers. So, so we are jealous to do good works. We, we have a zeal and a passion to do things that are right and good. That's Titus chapter 2. But that kind of jealousy is rarely seen in relationships. Most of the time when we see jealousy, it's the evil kind of jealousy. It's the ungodly kind of jealousy. It's, it's the jealousy that's the result of misplaced possessiveness. It's, it's the kind of jealousy that comes and says, I have a right to something that I do not have. I, I have, I have a right to have what my friend has and, and he has it and it's not right that he has it. I should have that. It should be mine. I deserve it. It's my right. It's misplaced possessiveness. It's, it's misplaced pride. It, it's, it's all about me. It's about my exaltation. It's about people bowing down and worshiping me. It's, it's a misplaced desire for recognition. So that, so that people are drawn to me and so that I am exalted. My brothers, when we think about jealousy in these ways, jealousy is a lack of trust in God. Because jealousy says, I need to be jealous in order to get what I want because I cannot trust God to give me what I need at the right time. And so, I need to subvert the process of God because God has obviously not done things right if that clown has what I deserve. And so I need to get it for myself. My friends, that is, that is not love. And friends, the, the, the more successful we are, the more successful a church is, the more successful a ministry is, the more successful that we personally are, the more likely this problem will be to crop up in our lives. You contrast this with Paul's own perspective. Read Philippians chapter 1 this afternoon. We don't have time to look there, but, but read through and see what Paul's perspective is on those who get glory, those who get recognition. Paul didn't care who got the recognition for the work of the ministry as long as the name of Christ is exalted. And so Paul didn't just say, love is not jealous. Paul lived, love is not jealous. There's another thing that love will not do that love cannot do, and that is love cannot brag. Love does not brag. This is presumptuous and and self-promotion. One of the things I do when I'm studying, I will often pull up a lexicon and and look up... um, words and definitions in my in my Greek lexicon and and it they're they're pretty boring reading typically honestly they're, I mean it's it's heavy it's technical um, and 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 so when you're reading it you kind of get bogged down in some of the details sometime I was really intrigued when I pulled up my lexicon this week and I looked at this word and it says he's a windbag I thought that's a word I understand He's just blowing about himself all the time. He's, he's perpetually showing off and calling attention to himself. And friends, he's doing this because he does not trust God to take care of him at the right time. This also was the Corinthian church. If you just pull your eyes back up to chapter 12, the end of the chapter, verse um, 28 um, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All, all do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Why does he say that? Because the Corinthian church was saturated with people who are saying things like, well, I deserve to be an apostle. Well, I'm a prophet. I'm a teacher. I have a word of knowledge. I, I did a miracle. I, I, I have taught. I have healed. I have tongues. I interpret. I I, 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 look at me. Love does not brag. They're drawing attention to themselves instead of attempting to use their gifts 
for the good of the church body. Well, this arrogant speech is the overflow of an arrogant heart. Arrogant speech comes from arrogant hearts, and that's where Paul goes next. Love is not arrogant. Love is not puffed up. Why are people windbags? Because they are blown up and filled up with themselves. The arrogant person is puffed out like a pair of bellows that have blown into his life all this self-thought and self-thinking. He's put on airs. And he's too full of himself to be a benefit to anyone else. Again, this is a particular problem for the Corinthian church. The the word appears only seven times in the New Testament, this word arrogant. Seven times in the New Testament. And it appears six times in this letter. So it's it's not just a Pauline word. This is a Corinthian word. This is a word that defines the Corinthian church. Arrogance. And their arrogance led them to overlook sin. So chapter 5, verse 2, when there was an incestuous relationship in the church body such that even the Gentiles, even unbelievers would have said, that is wrong. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, you have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. You, you have not mourned, you have not grieved over the sin Instead, in your arrogance, you've allowed it to remain in the church body to the detriment of the church body and the detriment of this man. And friends, this is, this is a particular problem, not just in the church, but it's a particular problem for those who are well-equipped, who are well-taught. Chapter 8, he says in verse 1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that, that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Love will build others up. But if you don't have the focus of building others up and you just take in knowledge for the sake of taking in knowledge without being transformed to becoming a loving person, you will become arrogant. Friends, the more you know, the more prone you are to this sin and the more prone you are to walk away from love. That's a real warning for us as we seek to build into each other um, and, and seek to minister to this community. That we be careful not, not to... St- to say, I'm puffed up because of everything I know, but to become a servant of others. Love does not, he says at the beginning of verse 5, also act unbecomingly. Love does not act unbecomingly. When when our girls were younger, occasionally we would be sitting at the dinner table having dinner and um, perhaps something from the day came up and a difficult relationship or a difficult conversation and one one of the girls would just explode with the word, Rude! that's acting unbecomingly. Not, not the way they said it, but the rudeness of which they were talking. That, that's this word. This, this word means rude, to do something that is shameful, to do something that is inappropriate for a given situation. Oh, friends, love, or, love never acts shamefully. Love never acts disgracefully. It never does anything that would cause someone else to blush in shame. It cares too much for others to do something that is unbecoming and inappropriate. Again, the, the, this is what was characteristic of the Corinthian church. It was manifested by, by women who conducted themselves inappropriately in worship. That's chapter 11. It is characteristic of the Corinthian church when they came to the communion table and they were disordered and even drunk at the communion table. And this is what was happening in the worship services as, as there was all kinds of chaos because of the gift of tongues and the lack of interpretation and all kinds of ungodly manifestations. And Paul says... This is not what love does. When you do that, you're not loving. And there's another characteristic he mentions here. He says love does not seek its own. This, this describes a self-serving purpose. This person is committed to himself. He is self-protecting above all things. He, he asks the question, what can I get and what's best for me? It's all about me. Now, now I know you all know what this is like. And, 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 and perhaps something similar like this is, has happened in your home. So... Sunday evening, the kids are in bed, or the grandkids are in bed, and it's all quiet. And you've got, you've got your favorite movie on TV, and you look at your wife and say, hey, there's a little bit of Bluebell still in the freezer. How about some ice cream? 
Yeah, great idea. So let me go get it. Um, you get everything set up on the TV. I'll go get the ice cream and then I'll bring it back. And so you get your bowls out for the ice cream and you start scooping it out and you take one here and one here, one here, one here, and then maybe a little bit more in that one. And you pick up the bowls and you take them to the den. And on your way, you're saying, I know one of these has more ice cream than the other. I really like Bluebell. It's cookie two-step. That's somebody's favorite over there. And that's... It's it's cookie two-step. It's the last. Nobody will ever have cookie two-step again. What do I do? And you can't say, I want to help my wife with her diet by giving her the one that has less calories. (laughs) That doesn't fly. The self-serving person takes what is best for himself and doesn't care what the other gets. Love does not seek its own. In the Corinthian church, my friends, was overwhelmed by selfishness. They didn't care about their use of liberties and how that was going to impact others. They didn't care if I do this, it's going to lead someone else into sin. All they could think about was I get a liberty and I'm using it. That's self-serving does not seek its own. Love is not provoked, that is. Love is not angry. Love is not irritable. Love is not touchy. Love does not become embittered. Even when wronged and insulted and injured, this person does not respond in any form of anger. Instead of responding in anger when he has sinned against, he blesses others. This is Romans chapter 12. Bless and do not curse. And he can do that. Because he trusts God that God, if he has been sinned against, God will enact vengeance at the right time. Either he will pour out his wrath against the sinner in hell or he will pour out his wrath against Christ for the redemption of that sinner. But either way, God's vengeance will be satisfied against the sin. And we can trust God with that. Love love is not provoked. Love is not angry. Love is not irritable. Love does not... At the end of verse 5, take into account a wrong suffered. That word account is the same word that is used in, in, the, in uh, Paul's letters speaking about justification. It's, it's the accounting of justification to the sinner. It's the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. So, so God looks at the sinner who is trusted in Christ and He removes this massive debt of sin and He, he instead accounts the righteousness of Christ to that person. And Paul says, using the very same financial accounting language, if we love someone, we do not keep an account of wrongs suffered. You know people like this, don't you? Some actually have written lists so that I'm always a little bit fearful when I ask the question in a counseling session. Um, Next time I want you to bring um, some information about about the wrongs that have happened and, and what has happened in this relationship. And I'm worried because people will do this and they'll come in even with a notebook and they've got a record of every wrong that they have endured at the hands of this other person. Now, some of us are not quite so over the top and crass as to keep a written ledger, but we know in our minds, don't we? You you can even now maybe go back and say, October 23rd, I remember what he did. October 23rd, 1981. I remember. And, And we've got the whole chronology of everything that happened against us. And Paul says, no. Love does not conduct itself that way. It doesn't conduct itself that way because of what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God has not imputed our sins to us. And that is the message of reconciliation that we take to the world. And that's why we don't keep a record of wrongs that we have endured and what we have suffered. There's one last characteristic that we do not do that he mentions, and that's in verse 6. 
Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not take pleasure in evil. The Corinthians had a, had a reputation for loving evil and for overlooking evil. And, and, and Paul says that that is not the status of one who genuinely loves. It is not loving to urge someone to sin with you. It is not loving to see someone who is in sin and remain silent. Love hates unrighteousness and wants to help pull out of unrighteousness those who are ensnared by it so that they can be free of it. And, and as a counterpoint... At the end of verse 6, he says, We don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but we do rejoice with the truth. We, we stand with the truth. We love the truth. We embrace the truth. And, and all that the truth is embodied, that is embodied in the gospel. We stand uncompromisingly for the truth. To say I love someone does not mean that I can act however I want. And they have to accept me. There are some limits on what I can do if I'm going to love others. There are things that I cannot do if I will love them. Now, now the point of this passage is not so much to say that if we love, we can't do these things. That is true. But the point of the passage is to, is to provide some self-examination and say, if you do these things, do you do these things? And if you do them, then friend, you are not loving. If this is the manifestation of your life, then you do not love. That's why someone who physically beats his wife can't say, I just love her and I want her too much. That's why I hit her. I've had someone say that to me. I love her too much. That's why I hit her. I love her too much. That's why I use every foul word in the book against her. No, friend. That is not love. Well, it is love, but it's self-love. And it is hatred of the one to whom you are wed. There is no place for that. Similarly, in the body of Christ, when we are keeping mental records of sins against us and acting self-servingly instead of serving others and speaking and thinking pridefully, we aren't loving others in the body. We're protecting ourselves and living for ourselves in a way that precludes loving others. There are limits to love. Now verse 7, Paul turns the page, as it were, and shows us some of the things that are manifestations of that love actually does. And here we have, verse 7, the extent of love. The extent of love. This is what love is always willing to do. This is what love always does. This is what, all, what, what is always a manifestation of love. This is, this is every situation in life. This is what love does. There, there is no time, listen, there is no time when these Truths, these manifestations, these characteristics don't apply. It is always right to do these things. In a sense, this verse speaks to the tenacity of love because four times he uses the word all things. All things. Love bears all things. Literally, the word to bear means to cover like a roof. It's protection. It's safety. It's the word that is used in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Um, love covers a multitude of sins. Love, love protects after a multitude of sins. Love forgives or is willing to forgive or pursues forgiveness. And Paul here is talking about the practice of reconciling sins that have been committed against us. So we we either transact confession and forgiveness with those who have sinned against us, or, or we forgive from the heart even if someone is unwilling to confess their sins to us and be restored in actuality to us. And we, we do that because we trust God. When Paul says he bears all things, love bears all things, he means that there is never a time when it is appropriate not to reconcile. He means that it is never, there's never a time when it is appropriate to harbor bitterness in his heart, in our hearts. He means that it is always good to pursue reconciliation. And friends, I know the context in which I'm saying this. I know that there are some of you who have suffered deeply 
There are things that have happened to you and sins that have been committed against you that are almost almost inappropriate to talk about. It's massive. Understand that. But friend, if you have been forgiven by Christ, you have been forgiven an immeasurably larger debt. And if Christ has forgiven you the debt of your sin against Him, then He not only calls you to forgive the debt of sin that others have incurred against you, but He enables you to do it. He doesn't just say, you can do the, you need to do this, and by the way, you can't. He says, this needs to be the characteristic of your life, and if you have been saved by Christ, you can. You must let it go. But if you are in Christ, you can let it go. He says there's another characteristic, verse 7, love bears all things, love believes all things. That is, this person believes the best of all possibilities about the one he loves. He is not critical, he is not judgmental, he is not jealous, he does not assume the worst, he does not gossip. Instead, he's always eagerly looking for the best and the most favorable reasons for circumstances that he doesn't understand and for which he doesn't have um, information. We've all been in the situation where we've seen someone and they do something and you go, what in the world is that person thinking? And you immediately shift into critical mode. At least that's what some of us do. And love says, I don't know what just happened, but I almost certainly don't have enough information because I know the character of that person. I know what that person is generally like. I know how that person loves Christ and wants to obey Christ. I know that person's commitment to the body of Christ. Before I go in and judge, I need to get more information. This, this does not mean that, the pers- that we are to be naive and gullible. It doesn't mean that we're to believe that white is black and black is white. If we know something to be true, then then we should not overlook it. But it does mean that we are not overly suspicious. It does mean that we ask questions before we make conclusions. It does mean that we would rather err on the side of making gracious assumptions than being unkindly critical. We really do believe innocent until proven guilty. And, And we act that way. We conduct ourselves in that way. We speak in that way. Love believes all things. Thirdly, love hopes all things. That is, hope does not despair. To have biblical hope is is to have complete trust in God. Hope is not a denial about the reality of the circumstances, but hope rests in the sovereign graciousness of God and it refuses to see failure as final. As long as there is grace... There can always be hope because God is in the business not just of forgiving our sins, but He buys our sins and then He transforms our sins and then He uses our sins in transforming us in ways that bring glory to Him and goodness to us. That's what He does. And, and when we hope, we are confident that we can, that He can do that and that He will do that. We have hope, not because we're confident in ourselves. We have hope because we are confident in God. We don't have time to take a look at all these passages, but, but just jot down passages like Psalm 27, Psalm 33, Psalm 37, Psalm 39, Psalm 40, and, and read through those in the next few days and see what it says about hoping in God and being confident in God. And friend, I know you're in difficult circumstances, but our hope is not in you. Our hope is in God. And who knows what God will do? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love keeps moving forward in spite of carrying a heavy load. Love love doesn't blissfully go through life and say, oh, there's no problems, everything is good. No, no, no. Love says there, there, there are some big issues here. There are some weights. There are some burdens. There are some, there are some hard things. But I am moving forward in commitment to love in the midst of this. We don't quit. We don't give up when there's resistance and trouble. We don't run away. We persist. Endurance is not resignation to the problem. 
Endurance, as one commentator says, manfully plays its part in resolving the problem. So we man up and say, I'm going to move forward and get this thing fixed. Love is tenacious to preserve and protect and keep a relationship. Love says to the one who has sinned against us, I know you may be trying to get away from this relationship, but I am going to pursue you with all grace to draw you back to Christ and to draw you back into this relationship. In the context of a marriage... It's, it's doing the kinds of things that Regine and I did before we ever got married, and we said, set it in concrete, divorce is not an option. I can't, and I won't. This word is never coming up between us. And, and there, there have been some occasions when we've had, we've had trouble, we've had difficulty. And the easy thing would be to run, I'm out of here, check me out, I'm done but I knew I didn't have that option. I made a promise. Divorce is not an option. And so I thought, well, I can, I can sit here for the next 42 years in misery or I can walk back into that room and I can fix it with that woman who is my bride. And I can be restored to her and enjoy the fruit of that restoration. Now, which way do you want to live? I walked back into the room. And the Lord is gracious to give you what you need in that moment to endure and persevere, even through the middle of the hard thing. This is a pathway that says love is volitional, it's intentional, it's driven by commitment, not feeling. Now, now friends, it is possible to believe and bear and hope and endure in all things. Notice he says it four times. All things, all things, all things, all things. What do you think he means by all things? He means, in unison, all things. Everything. There's never a circumstance when it is inappropriate to do these things. But it is only possible to do that if Christ is everything to you. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you will never be able to do this. And if all this sounds impossible to you, if, if you look at this list of 15 things and say, can't do it, it might be because you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Because if you're in Christ, this is what Christ increasingly enables you to do. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I urge you and compel you, you must trust in Him. You must believe in Him. And by believe in Him, by believing in Jesus, I simply mean that you must believe that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of your sin. You had a a debt of sin against you, and Christ died to pay for that debt. And then, by believing in Jesus, I also mean not only you have to believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, but you must also believe that Jesus is worth living for. So Jesus isn't just... Jesus isn't just the one who takes stuff away. Jesus isn't something you add to your life. Jesus is your life. Everything about Jesus is what you want. Jesus is the way to live. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you and compel you, I plead with you, would you please trust Him today? It's the only way you will ever be loved by God and it's the only way you will ever love anybody else is to trust and follow Christ. There's one more attribute, one more characteristic of love that he gives us. It's in verse 8. And here is the end of love. This is what happens when people love. Is, is, there, is there a good end for love? Indeed there is. Notice what he says, verse 8. Love never fails. Love never collapses. Love is eternal. And by that he doesn't mean that when we love others, there will never be problems. He doesn't mean that every relationship will be restored. He doesn't mean that there will never again be hurt. He doesn't mean that there will never again be a divorce within the context of the church. But he does mean that when we love because we have been loved by God, we will experience the end of God's love for us. Let me just draw your attention, just listen as I read, back to 1 John chapter 4. He says in chapter 4 verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us 
And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means atonement. Propitiation means satisfaction. God is satisfied with us. When we were outside of Christ, he was not satisfied with us. But once we are in Christ, he is satisfied with us perpetually, infinitely, eternally. That love that he has set on us because of Christ cannot be removed. So this means that we love others inside and outside our family in feeling and in action because God has loved us. And when that is true, we do not have to fear that we'll be left with nothing because God's love will never fail. In a Time Magazine article a couple of months ago, Rabbi David Wolpe wrote this. It is time to change the meaning of the word love. The word is used mostly according to the first definition given in the dictionary, an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels. After years spent speaking with couples before, during, and after marriage, and of talking to parents and children struggling in their relationships, he writes, I am convinced of the partiality of the definition. Love should be seen not as a feeling, but as an enacted emotion. To love is to feel and act lovingly. He's partly right, as we have seen this morning. Love is affection, but love is also action. It's not just affection. Love, love does something. So there's something inward in us that responds to another, but that love also acts. But, but there's something even more than that. That love is an action that is based on our relationship with God. We love because He first loved us and because the love that He has for us and that we have for Him will never fail. There's no ultimate way to love except as an outgrowth of our relationship with Christ. So love one another because you've been loved by Christ. Father, this is an appropriate word for us to hear this morning on this day, a day when we have been reminded about the love of mothers for their children. It's appropriate for us because we understand that this love is impossible apart from Christ. And so, Father, would you take this word that we have heard from 1 Corinthians this morning and would you drive it into our souls and would you compel us with it? Would you transform us by it? And in so doing, would you change our homes, our families, our fellowship with our children? Would you change our church families? Would you make Grace Bible Church of Granbury to be a place that is particularly known as a place where people love one another and are committed to this relationship with each other because of the love of Christ that is in them? Might that be our defining characteristic, Father, so that Christ and you are exalted? We pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.